reading is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, Simon has just told me. (laughs) For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples in the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The second reading will be from Ephesians 2. It'll be verse 8 to 10 on page 1174. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you very much, uh, Bethany and Sheila, for reading to us. I'd love you to keep Ephesians chapter 2 open, if you would. And um, why don't we pray with those words in front of us. And it is our prayer, Heavenly Father, you would open the eyes of our hearts to know you better as we turn to your word this evening and reveal to us things that we could never guess or work out by ourselves and, as we've already thought, uh, rub the truth, as it were, deep into our hearts. Uh, Make yourself better known to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a friend called Will who was chatting to a next-door neighbor who had a churchy background, and they were discussing what was unique about the Christian faith. And Will told her something along the lines that the message of Jesus Christ was bad news for good people and good news for bad people. So people who thought themselves were good generally rule themselves out of receiving what God is willing to offer them because they want to earn his love, and they can't earn that love by their efforts, he explained. But people who were bad and willing to admit that could be sure that however bad they were, God knew the worst about them and could forgive them completely. They could be confident that he would accept them. Even, he explained, if they died tonight and hadn't tidied up their lives because Jesus had died for them. Well, it was something like that, the explanation he gave, I've forgotten the details of what he said, but I do remember the punchline of the story, because having talked it through to see if she'd understood him right, the woman said to Will, that is amazing. You've just told me that the grass is blue and the sky is green. And I think she meant by that that it's exactly the opposite of what we would normally think. We think good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, or at least If we don't think it, we imagine that is what Christianity teaches. Just as surely as the sky above is blue, sometimes, and the grass under our feet is green. 
And in fact, the Bible teaches that bad people who admit their sin and rely on Jesus Christ go to heaven and can be confident of that. Whereas those who think they're good are proud, they're self-deceived, and they will face judgment with no prospect but condemnation. So metaphorically speaking, the sky is green and the grass is blue. It's the exact opposite of what we naturally think, of what we're led to believe by what others will say to us. Now, I'm not sure whether the woman Will was speaking to became a follower of Jesus Christ or not. But if somebody today comes to see that they can't earn God's forgiveness, that they must simply receive it as a free gift, and they do that by praying to him and receiving his grace, uh, the Bible says again and again from cover to cover that they'd be able to go home tonight knowing that they are accepted by God. It's personally transformative, that truth. And truths like this have transformed the life of the church, uh, not just the individual, at various points as well. Uh, Gideon explained, we're starting a new series today in the evening looking at great truths of biblical Christianity, which had, I suppose, and have repeatedly in the life of the church got lost out of sight over the centuries. And the 16th century was a case in point in the 16th century. These truths had got lost, but they were rediscovered and they are part of our history in the Church of England uh, by default as, as part of the 16th century shift that happened there. And these truths, well, what happened was they sharpened their focus on the great truths that they had recovered with one vital word. Uh, Gideon loosely referred to the solos. Um, that's a, a Latin word for the English word alone, I suppose, or on its own. So the church of the day had tended to say that they were the lifeboats, and if people wanted to be saved, it would happen through the church, almost as if the church was our saviour. Then what happened in the 16th century is all over Europe, with the advent of the printing press, there was an explosion of Bible reading. Everybody was able to read the Bible, uh, often in their own language. And people realised with great joy that we're saved by grace alone. It could happen, in one sense, without the church. Through Christ alone, he was the saviour, not the church. As a result of faith alone, little old me as a believer, without going to a priest. And our authority is scripture alone. And that package held together means that God alone gets all the glory. So that's the groundwork of the uh, series that we're going through, all those different solas or uh, alones. And we start our series with the idea of grace alone. And it's nowhere better expressed than in those verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Um, they tell us two things about the grace of God that I'm going to try and crystallize for us tonight. Um, grace alone saves us without our good works, is the first. Grace alone saves us without our good works. Let me read verses 8 and 9 again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
Paul's speaking to the Christians in Ephesus. It's a young church with both Jewish and Gentile members. And both of those two groups had their obstacles when it came to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jews might trust their pedigree. Oh, they're descended from Abraham. Or their performance. They had the law. As if they can contribute those things to God as a bargaining chip. And God had to say to them in that other reading we had, the Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous. You were smaller. You weren't a particularly spectacular um, nation, as it were. Size-wise, nothing particularly impressive about them. Um, I wonder if you could turn back to Deuteronomy 7. I, I felt like as Bethany read it, it needed a little look. This is really bad news. I sort of allow myself one cross reference a year in preaching, and we're doing it in January. But hey, don't hold me to it, okay? Deuteronomy 7. It says there, the Lord did not. Sorry, I'm looking at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Later on, he goes on to say, it wasn't because you were particularly righteous. You were a stiff-necked bunch. So why did God set his affection on his people? Why did he love them? Answer in verse 8. Will this do as an answer? Why did you love the people of, of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites? Why? It was because the Lord loved you. Okay? Is that an answer to the question? Just park that for the moment. I think we'll come back to it. There were plenty of obstacles in the Jewish mindset. The Gentiles, they might have had different obstacles in Ephesus. They might say, well, at least we understand our freedom. We know that rituals are no big deal. Who needs the temple? We are the temple, and so on. So the Gentiles might boast in a slightly different way. Both groups would be tempted to boast about their position before God, particularly when compared with others. And Paul has to say, no, your salvation is all from God, 100%. Uh, we didn't have this bit read earlier. It, it, he says in, earlier in chapter 2 that we're all by nature objects of God's wrath, facing judgment. The only way anyone can be saved is by God's gift, and he gives it to us freely. So the only thing I contribute to my salvation is actually the sin from which I need to be saved. And that's why he keeps repeating the negatives in um, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, it's not from yourselves. It's a bit that's tricky to read, isn't it? It's not by works, verse 9. It's not even the case that God supplies his grace and we supply faith. We trust God as if that was a good work that we bring to the table. No, even that faith is something that God has given. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention the cross back in Ephesians 2. Sorry, I didn't alert you to go back there, which would be good. Back in Ephesians 2, he doesn't mention the cross specifically as how God's grace is saved. But it must have been in his thinking. If I belong to Jesus, when he died, I died. 
And he identified with my sin, and it's now been paid for in full. When he rose again, then I was raised in him to new life. God's grace did it all. I need an illustration at this point. Simon Scott School of Art. Let's put it like that to start with. This is the illustration that um, a number of people here will have found helpful called the bridge illustration. And you could even use this to explain the Christian faith to somebody just by scribbling it on a bit of paper at some stage. The Bible begins by affirming that men and women were made for a relationship with God. We were created to enjoy a loving friendship with God. But our sin has separated us from God. Uh, We all ignore him and disobey him, and we don't thank him for all the good things that he gives us. And that means that a great gulf exists between us and God. Now, the question is, the bridge illustration is about this, how do we bridge that gap? How do we deal with that gulf? Um, People try to get across the gulf in lots of different ways. Some try it by religion, Some do it by being good citizens, by being moral, upstanding, uh, paying their taxes, raising their children well. Some might try it via um, the root of philosophy or human wisdom, thinking their way to God. So I I, I forgot to do this to to improve this picture. I wanted a dotted line saying we're trying to get across the gulf here. A dotted line that doesn't reach. Well, actually, these bridges make that point. Those are our human efforts to get across to God. All of those efforts start from our end. They are our works, and they never get across the chasm that there is between us and God, however hard we might try. Now, the good news is that God has acted in grace and made a bridge for us. This is going to be fun, isn't it? Let me try and work out how I do this. There we go. Okay, all the sellotape is going to go flying now, but hey... We, we're trying to do it, okay? Yeah, come back to Deuteronomy 7 in, in your mind on this. And remember that little bit there. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous. You were a small people, not very impressive, um, not very righteous. So why did God set his affection on the people of Israel? Why does God love us? And the answer he gave them was, because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. In other words, there was nothing in them to make them lovely to him. The love came from him. So the real direction of travel for grace is always going to be the arrow that goes this way. The love came from him, his loving nature, grace alone. He made the bridge. In fact, his bridge is a person. The God-man, Jesus Christ, and particularly his death for our sins. He paid the price we cannot pay by our own efforts. And that way, we can be sure of being saved and accepted. I don't know if I need this last picture in one sense I've made it clear. But it really would be possible for someone to go out of the building knowing that they were loved and accepted by God, And if, horror of horrors, they were 
to be face to face with their maker in some way uh, tonight, they would go straight to be with God forever if they had prayed and made use of the bridge that he provided. They have access to God that way. But Grace is saying the really significant direction of travel is God's grace to us. Okay. You might be thinking, oh, how arrogant to, for anybody to say they're sure of going to heaven. Well, it would be arrogant if we were thinking, I built the bridge. My good works have got me into God's good books. But that's not what we're saying. The Christian says confidently, it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. Okay, we'll, we'll go art free for the rest now. This is distraction over. I, I can't help thinking about Martin Luther when we look at this topic. Um, he was a German monk from the 16th century who tried to build the bridge from his end uh, without grapes. Here's what he said about himself. He said this, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. All my companions in the monastery would confirm this, he said. Yet my conscience wouldn't give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't quite contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And he went on, the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I daily found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. So he went on a pilgrimage to Rome. He viewed in Rome all the sacred relics there. He even climbed the Sancta Scala. That was supposedly Pontius Pilate's staircase. He did it on his knees. He kissed each step for good measure on the way up. And it's a nice little sort of parable of us trying to get upwards to God. When he got to the top, he realized that he would never find rest and peace with God that way. Peace only came to him when he began to understand that the direction of travel was from God to us, downwards, that righteousness isn't a matter of works, but God's grace won by Jesus Christ. Living a life which we could never match and then dying our death for us, paying for our sins, so we need not do so ourselves. Now, of course, you and I slip into Luther's mentality without noticing. You may know this sort of stuff. It's been in your mother's milk, spiritually speaking, as it were. You've had this sort of uh, understanding for years, perhaps. But we slip back into that mentality often and easily. Uh, I fall into some pattern of sin. Um, how do I deal with that situation? Well, not by running back to Christ and his grace to me. No, but by redoubling my Christian activities. So I'll have a longer quiet time. Or I'll try and invite more people to the explore course. Or whatever it might be. Those are good things to do, by the way. But I can't reach peace with God that way, nor wonderfully do I need to. God's grace saves us without our good works. In fact, so certain is it that Paul put it in the past tense. We have been saved. Past tense, job done. It's finished. 
However, that's not the whole story. So on to a second point. I'll be briefer on this one. Grace alone saves us for good works. And that's that little verse at the end of the passage there, back in Ephesians 2, verse 10. He says, therefore, we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So not only has God in his grace saved us from the penalty of sin, giving us new life, raising us in Christ, God's grace has done a work of new creation, remaking us, and he's designed us to do good works which he has already planned in advance for us to do. We aren't saved by good works, but we aren't saved without good works either. In fact, God has saved us so that we can do good works from this point onwards. And I love that word, handiwork. This is, a better, this is an example of where the new NIV, the 2011 version, improves on the old one. Uh, literally, it's from the word that gives us our word, poem. So it's sort of an artistic composition. We are his dramatic composition, you could say. We are crafted by him to do the good works he has planned and purposed for us. They are his good works. They're intended to showcase his wonderful, creative, gracious powers. And you and I, for Christians, are to be God's trophies. He saved us. He's liberated us to be the people he wants us to be, doing what he's planned for us. Notice again, it is God's grace which is at work. So there's no sense of pride in Christians as they do good works. Nobody's saying, look at me, aren't I something? Good works are God works. They're planned and then energized by God's grace. I think I owe it to Susu that in our family we remind each other almost every day that God has a wonderful plan for our lives. And that's a very powerful thing to pass confidence in that. Uh, down the generations. But I wonder if you think that way about yourself, that God didn't save you for your own selfish enjoyment, but for his good purposes. He has a plan for you. I don't think we always know in detail what that plan involves. But that he has a purpose is not in doubt. And sometimes you only notice it when you look back on your lives with hindsight. We see after the event what God was up to which can be very reassuring as you then face what is still to come. I think I can see that with hindsight in my own life. I feel the same way about family life as well. Um, Seuss is over in New York at the moment, and it's a little reminder to me that uh, we got married fairly late on, but God brought Seuss and me together by bringing her 3,000 miles for that um, particular hitching uh, to further his purposes for her and for me and for us together. Um, I'm very grateful to be married to Susu. I want her back quickly. Um, what we have together is much more powerful in Christ's service than if we hadn't married each other. And we're aware, too, that God put our family together, and he knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. And we want to see his purposes for combining us four fulfilled. So I want to just challenge people challenge you as an individual to look over your life and your family life and dare to ask the question, why has God put me, put us on planet Earth? What good works does he want for us to do that are a fit with how he's made us, uh, how he's put us together in our 
families, and so on. And to pray that way, ask him to help you grasp what you're supposed to be doing, what are the good works of his grace that he's saved you for. The main way I suggest he'll answer that prayer is as we look prayerfully into the Bible and allow God's word to reveal his purposes to us. Uh, In the main, we're not in any doubt what his general plan for us is. When you look at scripture, that's clear, isn't it? Don't pray for God to lead you and then shut your Bibles. God's leading and our reading of scripture go together. He'll reveal his purposes to us. But even if God hasn't revealed in detail all the plans of the future to us, be sure of this, God is not haphazard. He has a plan for your life. And that confidence, it seems to me, is hugely important for us. I wonder if you've asked asked some trusted friends what good works they think God might want you to do for him. As I say, it's not just for individual lives, I think, I'm sure this must apply, at least initially in Paul's mind, corporately as well. Paul says, we are God's workmanship to do together the good works that he's purposed for us. I wonder if you believe that of all saints as a church, that God has combined us uh, for a corporate plan that fits his purpose for the world. I often have a sort of bit of existential angst asking the question, what has God placed us for as a church here in Little Shelford? Um, I've been saying for a while that I think we're well placed to pursue being the best family church we can be, because that involves all of us in being a multi-generational family. And that's from the youngest. I don't know, who, who are the youngest people in the church? Is it the two Naomi's at the moment? Is it Eleanor? Well, from youngest upwards, whatever the youngest is. You've got a definite answer. Anyway, from the very youngest up to the older saints, who are such an inspiring example to everyone of what it means to persevere as followers of Christ. Family in that broad sense. And I think that vision fits well with the whole letter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 says God intends to bring all things under one head, Jesus Christ. Uh, If that's the vision for the church, it explains why all-age services are important. We have one this morning. Theologically, it's not just to give the ASK leaders a break in the morning, but so that all ages can be together. The pathfinders can be here from the rectory. Um, TNG in the evening service, uh, not just going off to their meeting later on. The same reason applies there. It's lovely to have one or two Hollands with us this evening as well, to remind us of that wider church family. And it's my hope that that vision for us as a church, why has God put us together in this place, in this way, um, helps us reach others as well who don't often have such a close community. I'm still um, purring with gratitude to God for last week's evening service. Uh, New Year's Eve we had, I think on my counting, 86 people in the, in the memorial hall. It was complete chaos um, in, in the way that often family occasions are. Um, but I thank God for that community that we had there. Grace alone puts that kind of community together. Christ is the missing answer 
to what's dysfunctional so often in human society. Well, pray on, please, for an even clearer sense of what the good works that God in his grace has for us as a church are, not least as you pray for the church council meeting tomorrow evening. I know it feels risky to commit ourselves to good works when we don't always know exactly what the shape of those good works is in advance. But that's why verses 8 and 9 are so important here. It's because I know God's grace has saved me without works that I'm liberated, I'm free to throw myself into the good works he has for me in the future without fear. My acceptance with God is not going to be affected by how I do. He knows the worst there is to know about me. I'm much more sinful and weaker than I think and much more loved by God than I dare imagine as well. He's not going to love me more if I do more for him. He won't love me less if I blow it. And when I enjoy that kind of embrace and acceptance, then I can really enjoy what he has planned for me. Grace alone saves us without our good works. And grace alone saves us for good works as well. Well, that's, I've run out of things to say, I think, on those couple of verses. I probably could bang on a bit more if I chose to. But um, it looks like it's time for us to pray. And let me just say, if you are conscious of wanting to cross that bridge for the first time, and you want help in how, asking God how to receive that grace, I'd be happy to help you. If you're thinking, I need new direction from God in pursuing the good works he's prepared for me, again, um, there are people here who'd be very happy to pray with you about that. But let's just pray for each other as I close now, and then I'll hand back to Gideon in a moment. It's our prayer, Heavenly Father, that you would take the glory for your amazing grace to us, grace in saving us and grace in transforming us for good works in the future. We thank you that you love us and you're committed to us, and we pray that uh, you'll help us to explore that and praise you for it for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.